This is day five of the 2015 Rocky Mountain Bible School. Our third period teacher is Brother Richard Morgan. His topic is Demons and the Superstitious Mind. Today's topic is Food Offered to Idols. Brother Richard. Well, a very good morning to you all, once again, brothers and sisters. Hopefully this week we've seen that the superstitious mindset is something that is natural to those who are burdened with human nature. And we've looked at how that this superstitious mindset has manifested itself in those who sacrifice to demons which are no gods, and how paganism developed because people want to believe that there are these magical connections between their rituals and outcomes and, and all these other things that we've been looking at. And perhaps, brothers and sisters, we haven't quite seen fully the exhortation for ourselves. And that's what we want to look at uh, more especially this morning. We want to look at how this superstitious mindset can manifest itself and does manifest itself within the ecclesia and how we should react to that, how we should deal with the superstitious mindset as it shows itself in our sophisticated, rational 21st century Christadelphia. Now we can picture the superstitious mindset, the superstitious person like this. So here is your Christadelphian and he surrounded himself by this box that makes him feel he's in control that he feels safe and secure. And that box of the various superstitions and ritualistic behavior that that uh, Christadelphian does in order to feel safe, to feel secure. And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, perhaps we're at least a little bit like that in certain areas. Maybe not fully like that, but we all have our issues that we tend to use as that safety net which come from the superstitious mindset. Of course, the problem comes that not everyone is like that. And so on the right-hand side there, we have another person who doesn't need to have these rituals and superstitions in order to feel safe. They've, they've freed themselves from that superstitious mindset. And we get this in ecclesial life. This is what ecclesial life is often like, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that we have those who tend to be more like this, surrounding themselves with their rituals. They have issues about certain topics. And there are other people who are quite free from that sort of thing. And they tend to interact negatively with each other. Just think about your own personal life and your ecclesia and the interactions that take place. Perhaps you're more over this side or over this side. Perhaps your ecclesia is more like this, but you're more like this, or vice versa. And there are all sorts of different relationships within the ecclesial community in which this sort of thing happens, where those who make issues out of things that we're going to discuss as we go throughout this, uh, this class, they have issues about certain aspects of our religion that others don't conform to. And they look at that person and they judge them negatively and say, why aren't you doing this ritual in this way? Don't you realize it's important? And I judge you as an inferior Christadelphian. And yet the one who has freed himself from that kind of behavior looks at the person who shackled himself with this, this mindset and despises them. And so the one, I've got these really the, other way, the wrong way around, but the one on the, the left is the right wing pharisaical, judgmental, strict, ultra-conservative brother that is despised by the left-wing liberal brother. Yeah? And that's, that, that's what we tend to do as brothers and sisters. We fall into this trap of judging and despising. And perhaps we're a mix of the two. Perhaps we've got a little bit of the boundary and a little bit of uh, freedom from that, depending on, on the issues that come up. But the bottom line, brothers and sisters, and this is what we want to talk about at this class, is the importance of establishing and solidifying godly ecclesial relationships. 
Because when Moses wanted to see God's glory, after he had received the law containing all those rituals and so forth, but Moses wanted to see God's glory. Show me your way. And what did God show to Moses? Did he show to Moses that I am a God who's interested in sacrifice and festivals and rituals? No, he revealed to Moses, I am merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. That is God's glory which is above the heavens. When we think of the sovereignty of God and what should override everything, what God stands for is far more important than these petty squabbles that we tend to have in which we judge and despise one another. And we've got to raise our thinking in our ecclesial relationships and establish in our ecclesias the sovereignty of God. And we know the verses very well, brothers and sisters. Things like in Micah chapter 6, to this man will I look, who loves mercy, does justly, and walks humbly before his God. Or Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, quoted by Jesus when he challenged the Pharisees to go away and understand what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. It's not the rituals which are important. They have a place. But the overriding sovereign law is mercy. So let's uh, remind ourselves of this tendency we have naturally to show this superstition instinct in our behavior. And so we have our various objects or our rituals that we can bring into our religious lives and we imagine that there's an outcome. Because we do the ritual or we have the object and we think that there's this connection between an outcome. So, for instance, we do something in the ecclesia and we think that simply by doing that ritual, it makes us righteous or holy or sanctified. Or by avoiding something, we avoid uncleanness in a, in a spiritual sense. And we make up these associations in our minds that by doing something or by avoiding something, that in itself makes us righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy. Let's look at a, a four instance in the first century Ecclesia. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, one of the hot topics in the Ecclesia was circumcision. And you can understand why it was a hot topic. I mean, this right doesn't just go back to the law of Moses. It goes right back to Abraham, who was commanded by God to circumcise your household. And then these Gentiles come into the ecclesia and then uncircumcised. And you can, you can understand how the Jews would have difficulty with that, the Jewish Christians. And so there's this antagonism that, that, that grew up. And the problem is that the Jews had attached to the ritual of circumcision something more than it merely being a sign or a token. They, just, uh, they had attached a religious significance to it that somehow it made you righteous or holy in itself, simply to have a piece of flesh cut off from you. And they, of course, missed the spiritual significance of cutting off the flesh in a spiritual sense. So Paul in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5 here deals with circumcision. And notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus... In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't matter. It has absolutely no significance whatsoever, the Apostle Paul says. But, and again, this overriding sovereign principle, the way in which God wishes to be manifest, only faith working through love. So there would have been those in the Galatian Ecclesias who said, well, we need to be circumcised, and they would be that brother with the, the boundary around his religious understanding. And there were those who had freed themselves, and perhaps they were saying, no, we shouldn't be circumcised. And perhaps they'd become a little bit superstitious about circumcision. 
And Paul says, no, it doesn't matter either way. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it's just a token. It's just an, an object lesson uh, that is meant to teach you about spiritual principles. Look what he goes on to say later on in the chapter, verse 13. He says, and here we see the, the balance. And we're going to talk about this balance as we go through. Verse 13 says, but you were called to freedom. And it looks like there he's siding with that brother who's removed that boundary around himself. And it's very easy for us in ecclesial life, brothers and sisters, those of us who consider ourselves to be free from the need for rituals and traditions and so forth, it's easy for us to look at those brothers and sisters who do emphasize things like dress codes and so forth and to despise them. And Paul says, no. Those brothers and sisters need to be treated with respect because very often our brethren who do emphasize rituals and so on, in, the, in their doing of those rituals, even though it might come from a superstitious mindset, also they're just trying to be reverent in what they do. And we need to um, acknowledge that and respect it. And so Paul provides the balance here in verse 13. You are called to freedom in which circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter, but, he says in verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, again, this overriding sovereign principle, through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All those rituals and sacrifices and so forth, all were teaching about this overriding principle to love your neighbor as yourself. But, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another because you're so focused on these issues and you're despising and judging. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so we need to make sure that our ecclesial relationships are our top priority, overriding these issues that tend to arise in ecclesial life and, and, and can create these conflicts. So let's delve into the first century problem a little bit more, and hopefully as we go through, we can see how it relates to the 21st century ecclesia. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is where the title of our talk comes from, Paul here is addressing another issue in the first century, that of food offered to idols. And this was especially pertinent. The, the, the previous problem was more of a Jewish issue. This is more of a Gentile issue. And perhaps both Jews and Gentiles had a problem with food offered to idols, depending on how they approached the, the topic. So Paul is going to address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And once again, he's going to provide the balance. He's not going to sit down the Corinthian brothers and sisters and explain to them in a rational way, this is what an idol is, this is what an idol is not. He's going to do that later on, but to begin with, He's going to establish this sovereign principle of the glory of God which should override everything else. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. We know, and that's going to be a key word, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Is that true? Love builds up. We know that love is the fulfillment of the law. But is it true that knowledge puffs up? Is that what we would call a truism? Yeah, I'm getting nods and mm-hmms and maybes and well, knowledge in very various parts of Scripture is actually described as a virtue. If you look at the Book of Proverbs, for, ex for example, knowledge of the Lord is the beginning. Sorry, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge is exalted as important in, in a lot of passages of Scripture. It is life eternal to know God. And whether we think of that as academic knowledge or um, experiential knowledge, I mean, we know there's, all, there's different types of knowledge, but you can go to passages of Scripture that tell us that even academic knowledge has its important place in the life of a believer. So knowledge in itself 
does not necessarily puff up. And what we're going to find in this passage is that it's a certain kind of knowledge in the context of food offered to idols which puffs up. So let's carry on reading. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds. And then if you go down to verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, there's that word knowledge again, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is uh, no God but one. And he's quoting the knowledge that was there in the Corinthian Ecclesia. We know an idol has no real existence. We know that there is no God but one. That Yahweh is sovereign. That all the gods of the nations are nothing. We've looked at that throughout the week. And so he carries on in verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, so he's acknowledging that there is belief out there in the pagan world of many gods, Yet for us, verse 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so the same principle we looked at when looking at uh, Acts 17, Deuteronomy 32, the sovereignty of God, that he created all things, he's in charge of all things, he's given authority to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be over all things, and that the gods of the nations are nothing. So he's establishing this very key first principle doctrine. Howbeit, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. And he's talking here to brothers and sisters in the Corinthian Ecclesia. He's not talking about, obviously, pagans out there. They don't know about the, the unity and the sovereignty of God. But he's talking to brothers and sisters and says, however, not all possess this knowledge. And you think to yourself, well, were they deficient in their teaching of first principles here? Didn't the, some Corinthians, did they still hang on to this belief that there are many gods and that there is not one God? And I, I believe that that's inconceivable. What he's talking about is a special kind of knowledge. So there was undoubtedly, I believe, in the, in the Ecclesia in Corinth, a very strong, probably, academic knowledge that there is one God. And yet, there were brothers and sisters in that Ecclesia who had come out of the pagan world with a multiplicity of gods who were having a real hard time letting go of their existence. Such is the power of the superstitious mindset. It's really, really, really difficult to let go of those superstitions. So you can know something in your rational part of your mind, but still there's that nagging feeling in the irrational part of your mind. And I think that's what Paul is addressing. That there were some in our ecclesia who had the clear knowledge that an idol is nothing. Yeah, it's easy. Let go of those gods, no problem. But there were brothers and sisters who still struggled with it. That yes, they could say, yeah, I believe there is one God, Yahweh, sovereign over all things. I understand that. But still, they were having a hard time letting go of their belief in idols. And so, carrying on in verse 7, however, not all possess this kind of knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So they had their former association, and those associations that we make in our minds are very, very, very difficult to break. Okay? We have a dotted line there, but it seems solid in our, in our minds. And so there were some in the Corinthian Ecclesia who are puffing themselves up to their brethren and saying, what do you mean you won't eat up? food offered to idols. Nothing. An idol's nothing. Well, have you got an issue with that? And they'd puff themselves up, saying we have a, a superior kind of knowledge. And there were brothers and sisters who said, no, I, I can't eat it. And it, I have difficulty when you're eating it because of the, the association that I make with idolatry. 
Paul is telling the brethren there to have understanding whether, when there are these associations that people make. And so intellectually, we know that there is one God. But still, it's difficult to let go of superstition. We need to have patience with those who do have these, these associations and hang-ups. We looked earlier in the week at how sup the superstitious mindset has manifested itself in things like the serpent on the pole. Here was an object that was used to drive home a lesson in the wilderness. And yet when we come to the days of Hezekiah, they were burning incense to it. They were sacrificing to it. They had taken the ritual and turned it into something else, into a superstition. We've see, so we've seen with the people of God that this can occur. But God doesn't work like that. Uh, God doesn't work through magic. He works through principles. Let's have a look at another couple of examples. If you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I just want to go through a couple of examples here because to understand that this phenomenon can occur in the mind of those who are the people of God. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I think I mentioned this in passing, in which Samuel has commanded Saul to wait for him, and they're going to offer a sacrifice. And Samuel doesn't turn up. So in 1 Samuel 13, here in verse 11, Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. And this betrays the mindset of Saul, who I like to call the, the prototype Pharisee. There's a lot of connections between the religion of Saul and the religion of that has developed in Judaism in the first century. He forced himself to offer this burnt offering, thinking that somehow by performing the ritual, there would be an outcome that was positive. So Saul had this kind of mindset. He did the ritual thinking it would have an outcome just simply by performing the ritual. So that's the, the superstitious mindset. Let's go over to chapter 14. We're familiar with this, of course, because we've been doing it in our, in our readings. And uh, this is the, the occasion where Saul makes his, or puts a curse upon his soldiers. They're fighting against the Philistines. And he says, you're not allowed to eat anything until we've won the battle. Which is completely foolish because these are soldiers who need that sustenance in order to fight. And so we know what happens. They win the battle and they fly upon the spoil. They haven't eaten all day. And verse 31, he struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Oops. Bad mistake. Saul comes on the scene. Verse 33, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood, which technically was correct. Okay. They'd broken the law. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves. And he gets all hot and bothered because the people had eaten blood. And Saul had lost sight of the fact that these were men who had just risked their lives in serving him in fighting this battle. And you can understand why they're hungry and they don't have time to drain the blood and they're just so ravenous that they eat the blood. And it was wrong. Technically speaking, it was wrong. They had disobeyed the ritual of abstaining from blood. And yet Saul could not see past that to see the spiritual qualities of these men who had given their lives in service. And, and perhaps you know someone like that or perhaps you're a little bit like that. On a Sunday morning, something's not quite done right. The brother didn't take the white cloth off at the right time, and that, oh, and it overrides everything else because the white cloth should have been taken off before reading 1 Corinthians 11 instead of afterwards. 
and you get hot and bothered about it, and you miss the fact it's just a ritual. We, we can get like that. We can get all hung up about things like that and miss the point. Uh, chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It's, the, the ritual is not should not be the essence of our religious life. It's obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and listen than the fact of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So this superstitious mindset that had developed in Saul's religion was tantamount, Samuel says, to idolatry. Let's look at the, the New Testament again. We looked at this also earlier in the week, Mark chapter 7. And we had a look at the washings ritual and how they had to take, they had to wash their dominant hand first and then the non-dominant hand and they weren't allowed to speak. And we, we looked at this whole rigmarole that they had with their washings, thinking that there were evil spirits that they had to wash off their hands. A ridiculous, superstitious rite that had developed but among the people of God. So they'd made this connection between a ritual and cleanliness, spiritually speaking, cleanliness. So he addresses here in verse 1 the Pharisees. The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And by defiled, they don't mean hygienically defiled, but spiritually defiled. And so, in verse 18, what is Jesus' answer to this? He said to them, then, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And so it goes on this list. And Jesus is saying, no, forget about this, these superstitious connections that you make, that somehow eating pork makes you unclean. It's just an object lesson. You can't become spiritually defiled by what goes into your body or rituals that you perform. You've got to concentrate on the heart, circumcising the heart. And we know this, this um, very well indeed. And so, again, we have these imagined connections that certain folk make between here washing and righteousness. And there is no connection whatsoever. So what about us, brothers and sisters? So, so much for Saul and the Pharisees, what about us? Can we make these connections in our minds as well? well let's consider a, a few things to do with Christadelphianism. And I emphasize the word or the, the suffix there, ism, because we have incorporated into our culture certain things, certain behaviors, certain rituals, which if we are honest with ourselves, if we use our rational minds, we will understand that they are not part of Scripture. We've added to Scripture. We have our own additions to the law. For instance, the breaking of bread. We can very much turn that into something different to what it's meant to represent. For instance, do we have a superstitious approach to the breaking of bread? Do we think that merely by eating a morsel of bread and sipping wine, that somehow that makes us righteous or holy. You can, if you're honest with yourself, you can sometimes get into that, that mode where simply by coming on a Sunday morning and participating in the ritual, that somehow that in, it, in of, of itself makes me holy. What about the arguments some people have over leavened or unleavened bread? Does it matter? Ecclesias have split over these sort of things. 
and then, of course, the fabled white cloth. Is there anything in Scripture that says anything about putting a white cloth over the emblems? And, you know, we can laugh about this, but there are brothers and sisters who believe, you know, everything should be done in decently in order, and the white cloth is important. And very often it's to do with reverence. We need to respect that. And maybe there are some of you in this room who, who have that sense of reverence and respect that you want to establish. But the important thing, brothers and sisters, is that what we're reverencing, what we're, re what we're fearing, is Yahweh and His principles. And we're not reverencing the ritual as if it's just a pagan ritual. We need to get our uh, mindset right on all of these things. Or what about um, our Sunday morning regalia? And this is something I have to admit, when I was younger, growing up, I thought that those brethren who did not wear a suit and tie on a Sunday morning were somehow deficient in their holiness, let's say. You know, I had grown up in an ecclesia that was very uh, dressy, and if a brother came to our ecclesia and he's wearing running shoes or whatever, I had difficulty with that. And I associated their dress with being ungodly in some way. And we do that sort of thing. And yet when we sit down and we let our rational mind control these things, we can understand that it is... God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God cares what's in the heart. Now again, there are those who dress up for meeting, and uh, I would include myself among this, who, who dress up because they feel it, it establishes in their mind a sense of reverence and respect. And again, we need to respect that. But we can't turn this, uh, these things into something which is of itself righteous and holy. We need to understand, for instance, with dress codes. Uh, it's kind of ironic, actually, the origin of dress codes. Uh, back in the day before the Industrial Revolution, people never dressed up for church. You know, typically, people were too poor, and they would dress in their normal clothing. They would turn up to church what they wore every other day of the week. It was the rich and the famous who dressed up. No one else could afford it. And then the Industrial Revolution came along, and the middle class developed, and suddenly that middle class realized, wait a minute, I can afford what the rich wear. And they started turning up to church in their fancy clothing. And it was the conservative element in the churches who said, can't have any of that. You don't dress up for church. It's, it's, it's funny how these things sort of develop in our, in our culture, uh, whereas today... It's the conservative element that tends to emphasize the importance of dressing up. And we need to be aware of these things, but have respect for one another and not uh, despise those who insist on putting on a suit and tie on a Sunday morning. But we need to have the reverence and respect. And we're going to get onto that in a moment. Uh, another couple of things. What about this? Okay. How dare we use a violin? Okay. And... You know, but our rational mind, if we were to examine the scriptures, they use timbrels and harps and all sorts of things. Okay? But our um, cultural uh, psychology, the way that our culture is developed in our minds and become fixed in our minds is that if we don't use a piano or an organ, it somehow feels wrong okay? and we feel uncomfortable brother would come in and play guitar. It's like, oh, that's evangelical or, or whatever. And we've made such associations in our minds that it makes us feel uncomfortable. And yet our rational mind, again, should tell us that it's just an instrument. It's just an object, a tool that could be used for good. It could be used for bad. But at the end of the day, it's not righteous or unrighteous in itself. What about our Bible versions and Praying using these and thous, for instance. You know, I, again, this is something I had difficulty uh, when I was younger. If a brother didn't say thee or thou, I somehow thought that they weren't being reverential. And yet for other brethren, I know saying these or thous is just 
difficult and it just doesn't make sense to them in their minds and they have difficulty with it. And we need, brothers and sisters, to have respect for one another. Uh, we need to respect those who have these hang-ups and we need to understand that those who don't use these and those aren't being disrespectful. They're just using another form of language. But nothing to do with respect or disrespect. You can be disrespectful and use these and those. You can be respectful and you use you and your. And our rational mind, we need to understand that these things are so. But brothers and sisters, again, the bottom line is ecclesial relationship should override all of these, these hang-ups that we tend to have in Christadelphia. That we're not to be shackled by a superstitious religion and let that control how we conduct our relationships with one another. We shouldn't make an issue out of these things, whether we're right-wing or left-wing. Don't let the issues become our religion, whether we're arguing in favor of the King James Version or against the King James Version or whatever it might be. And think of things like this. The Apostle Paul, who said circumcision and uncircumcision do not matter one little bit, found it necessary to circumcise Timothy, and he found it necessary not to circumcise Titus. It's a paradox there. How do you, how do you explain that? Was Paul, you know, did he have a butterfly mind? One thing he did one, one thing, on another time he did something else? It matters with Timothy, but not with Titus. What is that? How do you balance that in your mind? Well, the important thing that Paul was trying to establish was ecclesial relationships. It was important in the context of Timothy's ecclesial environment for him to be circumcised. And it was important for Titus not to be in his context, understanding that ultimately neither really mattered at all. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 21. We know that the Apostle Paul, throughout his writings, emphasized that the fact that the rituals of the law had been completely overridden by the royal law of Christ. And yet, when we come to Acts 21, there's a little bit of concern. So in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, it says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands that are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who believe, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And what is Paul's response to this? What did he say to the elders in the Jerusalem and Ecclesia? Did he say to them, I'm not going to perform a vow. What are you talking about? It's a ritual, superstition. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to purify myself. It's ridiculous. Don't you understand the gospel message is removed all those rituals, and it doesn't matter? I'm not going to purify myself. But verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled. And you can see here what the Apostle Paul is doing. He understands in his mind that the performing of that vow in itself doesn't make him pure. He understands that. But for the sake of these ecclesial relationships, he performs the vow because that overrides the doing or the not doing of the vow. And in this context, he realizes that he's just going to antagonize his brothers and sisters if he insists on playing a guitar instead of an organ or he insists on using the, 
uh, ESV instead of the King James, or he insists on turning up in jeans and t-shirt, because it doesn't matter what you wear, God only looks on the outward appearance. No, he understood the ecclesial context, and he conformed himself to it, because what was more important than his right not to wear a suit, or to wear a suit, what was more important than that was establishing and solidifying godly ecclesial relationships. And so, what is the bottom line then, brothers and sisters? It is that we tend to do what's below, but we've got to override that with ecclesial relationships. So let's end with a couple of passages in Romans chapter 14, first of all. And the Apostle Paul here says it much better than I've been trying to say. In which he says in verse 1 of Romans 14, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't let that dominate your ecclesia. Quarreling over things which do not matter. Whether you're someone who thinks it's important to wear a suit, and so you're going to wear a suit and you're going to tell everyone else they've got to wear a suit, or you're someone who thinks... No, that's pharisaical. That's outward appearance. I'm not going to wear a suit. I'm going to turn up in jeans and t-shirt to antagonize that brother who thinks I ought to wear a suit. And both of them are making an issue out of it. Whereas both of them have to learn to let go and override it with the principle that Paul brings out here. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other person, the weak person, eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So that's the principle that we're, that we're establishing here. Don't let that cycle of judgment and despising dominate uh, your ecclesia. Verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So live according to your conscience under the umbrella of loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what uh, Paul is establishing here. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I... Live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So our focus should not be on ourselves and my right to wear a suit or not wear a suit. My focus should be on my brother. That's the overriding principle, to love my neighbor as myself. Verse 14. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, whether it's a guitar or a modern version of the Bible or a T-shirt as opposed to a shirt and tie. Nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And so for those who still struggle with this superstitious mindset, you have to have respect and patience with them. And not think that by antagonizing them that somehow they're going to snap out of their superstition. And so verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not about what we put it in our bodies as far as meats or vegetables or whatever it might be. It's not a matter of the rituals that we perform, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, he's saying, if, 
your ecclesial context is such that everyone dresses up on a Sunday morning, for them it is unclean not to dress up. So dress up. Don't make an issue out of it. And we can think of a, a, a number of other things in which we need to have that respect that, uh, for our brother ahead of our own rights. Let's look at, uh, very briefly at a, a little case study. What about going to a rock concert? Okay. Now, there's a brother then who likes the music. And there's nothing wrong particularly with the words. He just likes the music. And so he goes along to a rock concert because he likes to listen to music. And he wants to hear it live. And it's fantastic. And for him, that's perfectly fine. But what about the young person in his ecclesia who has just come out of the world and associates rock concerts with drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and, you know, the, the negative things of the world. And perhaps he's been to rock concerts in the past, and there's been drugs there, and he's struggled with that. But now he's come out of that, and he's embraced the gospel, and yet there's his brother in his ecclesia that he respects, and his brother says, come along with me to the rock concert. It's great music. That's an example of while music in itself, for instance, is not unclean in itself, this other brother has made associations with paganism, modern-day paganism in his mind, and you're going to cause your brother to stumble. So for the sake of my brother, even though for me it's just music and any of that other stuff I don't care about, for the sake of my brother, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to indulge myself in this, in this lifestyle. Because I love my brother, and his salvation is more important than my rights to enjoy myself how I want to. Well, finally, brothers and sisters, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've looked at this passage before. This is the passage which, in which Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32 in establishing that connection between idols and demons. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and at verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, if an idol is nothing, you can't flee from nothing. What Paul is doing in the midst of establishing this relationship between the nothingness of idols and demons, at the same time, he's acknowledging the fact that idolatry is a difficult thing to deal with, even though in and of itself it's nothing. In and of itself, a Christadelphian in the first century could go to an idolatrous temple, they could even involve themselves in all the rituals and understand that doing these rituals means nothing at all, I'm not actually worshipping a pagan god, I can do it in all good conscience. Okay? And Paul says, no, don't have anything to do with idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, rational people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now it's interesting that Paul introduces here the breaking of bread in the context of what he's talking about, because the breaking of bread is meant to emphasize our oneness and our unity and the fact that we're members of one another trying to help one another towards the kingdom of God and not put stumbling blocks in the way of one another. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And the answer comes back, no, in and of itself, it is nothing. If someone offers food to an idol, it's just food. The fact that it's been offered to an idol hasn't changed the food, hasn't caused it to become unholy, it's just food. Verse 21, though, he says, or carrying on in verse 20, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, but, he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the Apostle Paul says, even though idols are nothing, still have nothing to do with it. 
because these associations are so strong. So the pagan rock concert, for instance, even though it's just music, and it's just electric guitars, and it's just you know, all of those things that are at a rock concert, in and of themselves, they're just objects, there's nothing to them. But the whole context is something that Paul says, no, have nothing to do with it because it's going to cause your brother to stumble and it's going to spoil those ecclesial relationships. Verse uh, 24 then. Well, verse 23, he says again, all things are lawful, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So I may have established in my mind, according to my conscience, that it's perfectly fine to go to a rock concert or whatever it might be. It's lawful for me, but is it helpful for my brother? Is it going to build my brother up? So verse 24 says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's not about my right to do what I want because of my conscience but I have to re have respect and love for my brother. That's the overriding sovereign principle to establish the love of God. And so he says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks, or to the ecclesia of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that may be saved. And so above all else, brothers and sisters, the overriding principle in our lives, that which establishes the sovereignty of God in everything we do, is to love God and to love our neighbor.